We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. You know the world is going wacky post-pandemic when Tim Hortons is talking about selling pizza. Was this Bieber's idea? Here, score! What's that? The world is going nuts! The world has gone mad! It's all, blame it on that dang pandemic! It's, 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 It's making us all nuts! Even it's even gotten to the point where uh, Tim Hortons is talking about selling pizza. That, that's how wacky things have gotten in a post-pandemic world. I don't know. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Great to have you aboard. Hope you join in the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Yeah, we're going to talk about this uh, with Bruce Winter a little uh, Winter a little later on, retail expert. Uh, it's not happening up here, um, but uh, well, we'll tell, we'll wait and tell you later. But uh, they're talking about selling pizza at uh, at Timmy, so we'll talk about that and testing and so on and so forth, and and where that goes. And and you know, some are saying, hey, why not? Why would you not want to do that? What the heck is it? All right. Uh, that's just a small sample of the great topics we're going to be talking about uh, a little later on today. Uh, something that we've, uh, you know, everybody's talking about over the course of, uh, well, I don't know, since um, post-pandemic, if you want to call it that, wherever we are. Although my uh, daughter's told me that at her university they have to mask in school. So that's interesting that that's coming back for the fall. We'll talk about that uh, later as well. But uh, obviously, uh, lots going on in the world and, and families trying to get by with, you know, rising costs, inflation, uh, the cost of energy, the cost of housing, the cost of groceries, the cost of pretty much everything uh, is, is going through the roof. And uh, as you know, I'm very critical of the prime minister and he, he seems to be talking about a lot of things other than what we need to be talking about healthcare. One of them is the provinces are all trying to get together to solve issues. Uh, it'd be neat if we had some leadership there. Uh, also, uh, in when it comes to energy, there just doesn't seem to be any chatter. It's 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 social feel good issues. It's handgun bans. It's things that really aren't bread and butter kitchen table issues that you and I have been talking about uh, every day here for who knows how long. So, um, you know, it, it was fascinating when all of a sudden uh, the prime minister has uh, jumped on uh, with Germany in a creation or future development of hydrogen. Uh, and again, we know where our, uh, our, our, I guess, priorities are with renewables, whether it's solar, uh, whether it's um, uh, wind or, or other alternate fuels, hydrogen being one of those fuels. Uh, many have said that Canada should be ramping up its clean natural gas production and exporting that to the world uh, in order to get them off the much dirtier coal or other forms of dirty energy from dirtier countries than us. Um, but the Prime Minister, again, just doesn't seem to be wanting to talk about that. He doesn't want to be interested in it in any way. And yet here we are talking about hydrogen, which is something that is still relatively undeveloped. Should we be looking at it? Absolutely. Is it a part of the mix of the future? Absolutely. But again, we're talking about things that aren't 
developed, that aren't here yet, that aren't at the stage where we need them to be, whereas our cleaner forms of energy uh, are already there and and can already help. So it always seems that rather than finding something that you can actually attach a tangible result to, something like, oh, look, there's a win, the Prime Minister always seems to go for something that's so far off in the future you can never gauge whether it is a win or not. Uh, here's the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz talking about not wanting to depend on Russia for their energy anymore. As Germany is moving away from Russian energy at warp speed, Canada is our partner of choice. For now, this means increasing our LNG imports. We hope that Canadian LNG will play a major role in this. But the task at hand is much bigger than simply diversifying our energy supply. Uh, here is the rest of that message via a translator. If hydrogen plays a major role in energy supply in the future, Canada will be of utmost importance uh, to the whole world. It can become one of the big powers in supplying green hydrogen to many industrialized nations. And of course, we would be happy to be your partners in that process. All right, so there it is. Here's the, you know, the chatter of, you know, let's work together on developing hydrogen wherever that is in the world in its development. And we're going to search more into that throughout the course of the show. Um, but again, you know, Germany was always sort of on the cutting edge of renewable energy and development and such. And then all of a sudden they shut down their nuclear facilities and, and, and also start building pipelines to Russia to get clean natural gas from there. So you're building clean uh, pipelines to get your cleaner natural gas from Russia, but yet you're not talking about any sort of North American or or uh, or liquid natural gas uh, experiment, which is farther along than what hydrogen is. And the prime minister is insisting that there isn't a business case for that when there's no end of experts that will come and say, we've got to help here and get the world off coal. And again, it's, you know, it's not, a, it's not an, a this or that scenario, and it never has been. Energy experts will tell you this is a mixed bag solution as we get off, wean off fossil fuels. But uh, again, it, it seems that there's all kinds of smoke and mirrors and all kinds of fancy socks and selfies and not really a tangible solution that helps people now. It's all stuff that can't be measured. You can't, be, you, you can't measure the success if we obtain it in his, in his term. So, you know, it's like as soon as there's a problem here, look, there's something shiny over there. As soon as we're all talking about this, all of a sudden, look at that. And we never get farther ahead. And you just got to shake your head and ask why. And we'll do some of that coming up later on uh, throughout the course of uh, Hamilton Today. A new collection to showcase Hamilton's growing film industry is going to be unveiled at Supercrawl. Let's bring in Max Francis, true Hamiltonian, and is with us now. Max, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am fantastic. Thank you for having me. So tell us about True Hamiltonian, the collection, what this is all about. Uh, so this new collection is basically called Hollywood North. As you know, Hamilton's become quite the movie and TV show uh, destination for filming. 
And there are so many unique places around Hamilton that have been featured in TV shows and films. And I was working with the agency at Mohawk and the students I was working with, uh, they were really excited about showcasing those places. So we turned it into a collection. So uh, how much of this was about uh, the kids at Mohawk and, and coming up with this cool idea to meld uh, the film industry and what you're doing? Uh, actually, the idea was my idea, but they refined it. They, uh, they came up with the location. They came up with the graphics. Uh, they were really, really good with uh, turning the idea I had into something tangible. So tell everybody how this all started long before uh, this new collection. Oh, True Hamiltonian? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, True Hamiltonian started 10 years ago, and basically it was just my way of uh, promoting and representing Hamilton. Uh, and to this day, I tell people it's not the clothing, it's the message. Hamilton is home. So anyone that loves the community and wants to be here, you're a part of it. And that's basically all we're doing is inclusion instead of exclusion. You know, we've talked about this uh, before, Max, but what what is it about having uh, your a T-shirt with your hometown or your city's name on it? We, you know, to me, this is something that's been missed so many times. But what is it about that that attracts people, that sells these? Uh, you know what? It's just a really simple message, but it seems to, uh, it seems to resonate with everyone. Uh, we've had everything from celebrities to musicians to you name it. They've uh, posted pictures wearing our gear, and every time they do, it's still a really cool feeling. And so uh, how many would be in the showcase? What can you tell us about this, this new segment that's going to be unveiled at Supercrawl? Uh, there's probably going to be eight different locations that we'll be featuring. Uh, we're planning to do uh, like a white a gray and a black version of each each item and uh yeah we're going to be on the super crawl fashion stage and we'll be debuting it there and we'll also be selling it at our booth at super crawl where are you getting interest in these is it just here or is it from all over the place who's buying these things oh my god we've gotten orders from japan uh california texas germany uh, South America, literally, we actually have a map where we put little pins in, and we've gotten uh, people from all over the world buying buying our stuff. It's insane. Half the time, I don't even know how they find us. So, it was this uh, with the movie, uh, the movie uh, theme that you've got going, the location theme. This could be ongoing. This could you could have several versions of this. Yes, absolutely, we could. Uh, but. We're usually we start gearing up for Christmas right about now, so I felt like this would be a really cool thing to have heading into the Christmas season. I know it sounds a little early, but in retail, you start now for Christmas. So how how do you explain the uh, involvement of Mohawk? How did that come about? Uh, so what happened was I was a speaker at Mohawk several times, and. Uh, they reached out to me. They have an agency that works with local businesses, and it's a way for students to learn about marketing, about uh, product development, stuff like that. And they wanted to know if I'd be interested in working with some of their students. 
And I said yes. And the students I worked with were amazing. It's such a great um, initiative they're doing. And if you haven't worked with the agency at Mohawk, I highly recommend that you do it. What a great idea. Uh, True Hamiltonian, Max Francis, uh, new collection to showcase Hamilton's growing film industry, various locations, whatever, uh, put onto uh, garments. And uh, again, like the rest of the True Hamiltonian collection, it's a pretty cool, unique idea and will be unveiled at Supercrawl. Uh, website, Max, we can go to to find out all of this. TrueHamiltonian.ca TrueHamiltonian.ca to find out more. Max, good luck with this moving forward. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Tim Hortons is going to give flatbread pizza a shot uh, in some test markets. Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19. He's with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program. So, you know, post-COVID-19, there's a lot of weird and wacky things going on. Uh, is this one of them, or is this just a, a great way to branch out and, and expand your customer base, that being flatbread pizza, uh, a trial test at Tim Hortons? Yeah, I don't think it's really a good idea. I mean, you know, Timmy's ran into some problems a few years ago when they were trying all kinds of different things. And they, you know, communicated that they were getting back to sort of a back-to-basic strategy where they would focus on their core menu items more. So I was a little bit surprised when uh, this came out. I actually tried it about two weeks ago. I didn't even know about it. I was driving around in Mississauga and uh, I just saw it and tried the pepperoni version. And, uh, you know, it tasted okay, but not great. Uh, You bring up an interesting point because uh, flatbread pizza is something you would see at uh, bars, pubs, that sort of thing. A lot of the times it served as appetizers. Um, and it, it's, it's reasonably inexpensive to produce, but if it's not done right, it doesn't taste good. Is this something you can do in a fast food type of atmosphere? Well, it's a lot tougher, right? Because, um, you know, Tim's is about speed too. You know, I ordered this, I mm-hmm. ordered this in the drive through Um, and you know, within about three minutes, they had it ready for me, but it tasted like they made it in three minutes, you know? So, yeah. uh, th- there's a bit of a, a quality issue. I think that's lacking. I think it's really tough. I mean, we all know McDonald's tried pizza years ago, right? And uh, yeah. it wasn't flatbread. It was just pizza pizza, but it didn't work. So, you know, I think this is uh, – I, I admire them trying new things, but, you know, I think that for some reason they're sort of – you know, they need to get back to their own book about trying to stick to basics. Does it matter as long as it's good? Like, what if you'd showed up there and after three minutes you're, wow, this is unbelievable? Well, it, 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 it makes it a better case. Customers will ultimately decide, but every time you do something uh, um, like at Tim's that's different than your core sandwich donut, you dilute the brand a little bit, and the brand sort of, you know, it doesn't stand for the same things it did before. So every time you add different things on the menu, you kind of dilute the brand, you kind of stretch it, and it may confuse consumers and it weakens the brand a bit. Is it about the number of items or selections on the menu as opposed to are they any good when we get there? I mean, there was lots of chatter about Timmy's going into the sandwich business uh, and and then sort of fell flat. Yeah, it really depends. I mean, one of the things you have to think about is that, you know, there's only so many things you can have on a menu before you start to jeopardize the time uh, that it takes to prepare it and prepare it well. And if you're in the drive-thru, you know, you expect to be in and out of the drive-thru in a few minutes, a couple minutes. So every time you add something, you add complexity to the kitchen. 
And, uh, you know, they got to be really careful. They, re- they fell down this, uh, this rat hole uh, a few years ago, and it kind of cost them. What happened to McDonald's? Why, did they, why was this not successful for them? Yeah, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I think it was just a combination of taste and um, just, you know, their brand fit and probably their ability to make it because McDonald's is very much like Tim's in that it's a fairly quick turnaround. You have a very quick expectation. Both companies live and die by their drive through and uh, very difficult to make pizza that tastes edible uh, in, in two or three minutes for a drive through encounter. Um, any chance we'll see burgers or was that sort of with the Wendy's and they, when they mix them together sort of thing? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, a few years ago, Tim's tried a, a meatless burger in a few restaurants. I tried it. It was okay. But, you know, that was sort of an, another thing that people sort of balked at and said, okay, you know, it doesn't taste that good. What are you trying to be? Are you, are you a donut place and a sandwich place or are you a burger joint? And it just kind of confused customers and I think it hurt their brand a bit. So, I hope they kind of get back to what they're really good at and just kind of stay there. What about the whole Bieber bits and all of that and using him as part of a campaign? Has that been successful for them? It has. It's been very successful. And But you know what? They kind of stuck to their knitting a bit, right? Like the Bieber mm-hmm. stuff was, um, you know, drinks and uh, Timbits, right? Which is kind of their core competency, right? And there wasn't any issue there in terms you can pre-make the Timbits and things like that. So that r- worked really well for them. Um, but, you know, I don't think this is going to work as well as maybe they hope it will. Uh, do they spend, do, do places like this spend a lot of time on always trying to come up with something new? Do you have to constantly come up with something new, or is it about refining what you have that's been selling for years? Well, I think personally it should be about refining what you have, and you can do line extensions or menu extensions within, the, within their core menu right. set, but stepping out into pizza is a radical departure. It's like if Tesla added a gas-powered car. It mm. wouldn't make sense, right? It's just not, it goes against everything they're doing. So I think Tim's needs to be careful and reel it back in. Uh, does it cost a lot to do an experiment like this? No, it doesn't cost that much because I think they're testing about 20 stores in Toronto. I don't think they've done a lot of marketing or advertising. Maybe they have. But, uh, you know, it costs a little bit because they have to train people. They've got to get new ingredients in. And they've got to, you know, do a few other things. But it doesn't cost that much. And perhaps that's why they're trying it. You know, and again, I, I do applaud their innovation, but I just think it's pointed in the wrong direction. Uh, also, McDonald's, uh, Chicken Big Mac. Uh, they had a successful UK trial with this and now testing it in Miami and areas around there. Your thoughts? Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because a lot of people like chicken. Not everyone wants beef, right? And the Big Mac is established. It's a little bit risky, you know, putting it in the Big Mac. But that's a much more natural trial, right? Because it, it all, it's all within their core competency of burgers and, you know, chicken sandwiches and things like that. So I think that could do well because a lot of people are eating healthier these days. Uh, and some people don't eat meat, right? Either you're a, flex, a vegetarian, flexitarian, or for religious purposes. So you know what? It, uh, it, it may work. Who is this really targeted towards? Because from what I read about it, it's kind of like a deep fried um, tempura thing anyway. So I don't know how much better that is for you than what was, you know, than the, the meat patty that's in its place. Who do they who do they gear this to? Who do they tar- who do they target? Yeah, you know what? They're probably just trying to bring in people who eat this kind of thing, maybe at more advanced burger places. So some of the sort of gourmet burger places. Um, some of the, uh, right. you know, sort of independent chains maybe target some of those folks 
who like a bit more interesting things happening with their burger than McDonald's has now. Is this like a Chick-fil-A thing? I think it is, yeah. I mean, that, that was the big story a few years ago, right, is that whole Chick-fil-A thing. And that went nuts, and a lot of people emulated that, and I'm sure this is McDonald's version of it, probably. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19, talking about changes to fast food. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As I often like to do, head off into space when things get too wacky here on uh, planet Earth. And we have seen, uh, courtesy of the new James Webb uh, Super Duper Telescope, uh, new exquisite images have emerged from the planet Jupiter. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Professor Emeritus Astronomy, York University, Paul Delaney is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Always nice to chat. So I'm taking a look at this image right now, and yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty nice picture. Uh, first thing I'm noticing is lots of color. Let's talk about this telescope first and how this has allowed us to even catch these images. Well, James Webb went operational, uh, I guess, around about early July, July 12th of this year, after a six-month um, uh, proving process where you know we deployed it, made sure all the uh, mirrors were operational, the instruments were operational, well calibrated. Six months of nail-biting, and then in July, we started seeing these wonderful images, and those first few images of galaxy clusters, of nebulae. Uh, you know, they've just been stunning, and the images keep on coming. And, of course, now we're talking about images from our own backyard, from the solar system. Up until now, we've been looking way back in time, almost to the, to the beginning of time. But now we're just having a bit of a cruise around our local solar system, and Jupiter is up front first off. Now that this is this telescope, this this project is up and running, what will we learn from this? How will this help solve mysteries of our solar system? Well, it's certainly going to answer a number of questions, and you can bet that it's going to ask a lot more. That's that's the way it is. A new instrument answers a few questions and then asks a lot more. Uh, In this particular instance, the spatial resolution of uh, James Webb Telescope, in other words, the fine detail, the exquisite detail, in fact, that it's able to give us, is really great. We'll be able to turn it onto the planets and literally sort of watch things evolve on a week-to-week basis, things that we can't see from the Earth, we can see from from some satellites, but we don't have satellites in orbit around all these planets. So in this particular instance, we're looking at the combination of the auroral activity on Jupiter or above Jupiter, more to the point, and how that seems to work with the rest of the planet. We can see the ring systems. We can see a couple of the satellites and so on. So this particular image gives us insight into the the Jovian system as a whole, and that's perhaps the, the power of the James Webb. You, you are going to be able to look at the planetary environment, not just, say, the Great Red Spot. You're going to be able to look at the environment and see how things are changing across the planet and just above the planet. So it's going to help us understand systems as a whole rather than very specific elements within those systems. Talk about that spot, about that spot, and that very much uh, you know uh, makes this planet identifiable uh, from the rest. What is it with this spot? What is this <laughs> spot? That's right. The Great Red Spot is is iconic. When we think of Jupiter, I think everybody has probably seen and thought about the Great Red Spot. It's, uh, I guess the best term is it's a cyclonic circulation. That is to say, it's a huge wind structure. 
I, I don't want to use the term tornado because everybody then starts thinking water and so on. But it, it's, it's this big circulating storm system that has been around for over 400 years. In other words, since the very first moments that Galileo turned his telescope on Jupiter, he saw the Great Red Spot, and it hasn't gone away since. So 400 years and counting, uh, it's about twice the size of the planet Earth. So it's about 25,000 kilometers in diameter. And it's, it's like a big funnel. It rises high above the, uh, the, the, the ambient cloud deck, but it punches deep down into the cloud deck. So it's, it's a way for us to be able to sort of look down into the interior, only a few hundred or perhaps a couple of thousand kilometers, but it, it, it's like a, a funnel <laughs> that gives us insight into the upper cloud deck interior of Jupiter. So it's, it's both mesmerizing as well as really handy scientifically. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, does it move at all? Does it always stay in the same spot? It basically stays at the same latitude. So if you think of the north-south grid on the Earth, the equator is at zero and then the poles are at 90, Jupiter's great red spot always hangs out in the south equatorial belt. So it's at right about uh, 30, 35 degrees south latitude on Jupiter. But it does rotate with the planet. So as Jupiter spins on its axis every 10 hours, the Great Red Spot goes with the atmosphere. But it does actually move laterally somewhat. Uh, so it is drifting, but at the same latitude. What does this tell you, just that that spot is in that place uh, all the time and does not or does it affect the atmosphere on the rest of the planet? Well, I think in a way you could say it gives us a headache because we don't really understand why it is doing more yeah. more movement than it actually is. Uh, it, it's J Jupiter's uh, atmosphere is broken up into a series of what we call belts and zones, and they are both high pressure and low pressure regions. So some are rising higher into the atmosphere, some are going lower, and they alternate. So when you think about going from the equator to the pole, you go through these alternating regions of high pressure, low pressure, uh, and in very much like as you go from the Earth's equator to our pole, you go through differing wind structures. And so, you know, from the days of ancient mariners, they knew that if they were at a certain latitude, the prevailing winds would be east to west. But if you kept going further south, hmm. they would flip around and go in the opposite direction. Similar structure is appearing in the Jovian atmosphere, except it's on a colossally larger scale. I mean, Jupiter is 140,000 kilometers in diameter, and it spins twice as fast as the Earth does. So it's a very dynamic system. And as I said, there are these high and low pressure regions because Jupiter is uh, emitting a whole lot more heat, a lot more energy from its interior than we are. So it is a really very complex structure, which is why we love to uh, analyze it, because it gives us great insight into atmospheric activity, not just on Jupiter, but all across the solar system, including Earth. Which is why we love to talk to you about this stuff. Uh, a few seconds left. What are we going to see next? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I really don't know. I'm, I'm waiting to see Saturn, to be perfectly honest, as far as mm. our own solar system is concerned. But the, the amount of science that is happening across the length and breadth of astronomy, all the way from you know, deeper images into you know, the earliest moments of time, looking back at galaxies, all the way through to globular clusters, through to nebulae. I mean, I'm just along for the ride at this point in time. I don't know mm. what the sequence of objects are, but every time JWST releases an image, you sort of go, wow. Yeah, that is something. Emeritus Professor of Astronomy, Paul Delaney, York University. Paul, as always, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well.
You bet, Scott. Take care. Global News uh, working on a new series called Code Blue, which is obviously in regard to the healthcare system and what is going on in Ontario and virtually across the country, it seems. Teresa Wright is with us, national online journalist for Global News, and here now. Teresa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you so much for having me. So this is a series. Tell us a bit about it, what you're going to uh, touch on throughout the course of this. Yeah, so um, over the next few weeks, Global News um, is going to be delving into the healthcare system uh, and the problems that have been um, facing, um, you know, systems across Canada. So, and a lot of those problems, as we've been seeing in, in the news in recent weeks and months, um, is, is focused on emergency room closures um, and, and a lot of the, the pressures that uh, emergency rooms are facing. But what we've been looking into is is really how um, there's a number of different factors that have kind of led to this, that the emergency rooms and the pressures they're facing is, is a symptom of a wider problem in the health system in general. So we're going to be looking at all, all a lot of those different aspects including um, the role of, of a shortage of family doctors across Canada, um, the role of, uh, you know, shortages in, in long-term care beds and how that is also contributing to not being able to move patients through the emergency room into the hospital uh, units. We're going to be looking at public and private partnerships when it comes to health care uh, and the role of virtual care. So really kind of delving into all these different areas in order to kind of get a bigger picture look at, at what is going on in the system, what are some of the problems, and also what are some of the solutions uh, that uh, a lot of the stakeholders are, have been pitching to government. We all know that healthcare is is a provincial responsibility, and that once initially this health healthcare system funded fifty percent from the feds, and now it's it's at about thirty percent, twenty five to thirty percent. So money has 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 been an issue, and and this template does it need changing? Um, are, are you think are, are, this is pretty much something that has gone across, is going on right the way across the country? It's not that you know. I mean, the issues might be a bit different from province to province, but it's something that every province is is calling for. Yes, exactly, and 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 that's that's why we wanted to take this sort of national look at things because it really doesn't matter what province or territory you're you're in, the same problems are happening everywhere. It's playing out slightly differently, and some of the the factors that lead to it is is a little bit different. For example, in Prince Edward Island, smallest province in Canada versus Ontario, the largest populous pro- province, um, but essentially the same. The problems are the same, and and, and yes, you're right that that. Provinces and territories have jurisdiction over healthcare delivery in this country, but healthcare is also a shared responsibility responsibility between the federal government and the provincial governments, um, because the federal government's responsible for for funding uh, and providing that funding to the provinces. And as you mentioned, that you know the premiers of, of all the provinces and territories have been calling for more funding um, from Ottawa to deal with a lot of these problems. Uh, but meanwhile, the federal government's been saying, you know what, we need to see some tangible results before we start to, you know, to pour more money into this system because there are really important questions about, you know, the, the money that is going, the $45 billion going to the provinces this year alone. Where is that money going? Is it being spent in the best way possible? And is there a way that we can be looking for more creative solutions to this, the problems that are, are facing everyone? So it's we're going to be trying to, to kind of look at who's responsible for for these different situations and and looking at and really kind of holding those people to account to say, 
okay, so now that we know what the problems are, what are you going to do about it? And we're all hoping, Teresa, that the end of all of this will have a solution <laughs> that you can report to all of us because everybody's wondering, you know, where we go from here and, and, and the, buck's just, uh, the buck just keeps getting passed. Um, we're obviously seeing the, pri- uh, the, pre- uh, the premiers, the provinces getting together, holding summits, whatever. Uh, they were even doing this under uh, the leadership of, of B.C. Premier Horgan uh, in the midst of the pandemic. Do you get the feeling that the feds are listening, that the feds want to work with the provinces on this? Because it, it seems as if it's, it's, it's a one-sided story at this point. I, I get the sense that, yes, I mean, they're, they're having um, conversations, you know, outside of the public, you know, of the press conferences that you see, there are conversations happening between the federal and the provincial governments, looking at some of those solutions and trying to to determine are there ways that that provinces and the federal government can work together. You know, every province it seems like they they want to do their own thing and they have their own ideas, but you know, it it's not as though every province has to come up with individualized solutions. There's things mm. that could happen, you know, across the board where everyone could, you know, help each other. And so I do think those conversations are happening. It's, it, you know, I think what everybody's been waiting for is, okay, well, when, when are we going to see that turn into something tangible? And, and that's really what we've been waiting for. That's what a lot of people on the front lines have been waiting for. Um, and we heard from, from Health Minister uh, Duclos today, um, Jean-Yves Duclos um, in Ottawa, you know, announcing that, you know, there's going to be a nurse, uh, a chief yeah. nursing officer, um, which, you know, kind of will bring the voice of nurses to the, you know, federal decision-making tables. But, you know, he talked about those conversations that are happening. So I think hopefully what we're going to see is, is some plans coming forth from that. And I think you're seeing that, that you know, there was also a, a press conference yesterday with the, the Premier of Ontario and, and the Maritime Premiers. Clearly, there's, there's, and, and, and desire for them to work together and come to solutions that that will benefit them all. It's just a matter of what's going to work and also what will will hap- what can happen in the short, medium, and long term because we need all of those things to happen, all of those different steps to be looked at in order to kind of deal with the crisis that is in the healthcare system right now. Yeah, good point. There is no quick fix here. Teresa Wright with us, national online journalist for Global News, talking about the Global News series Code Blue, which is talking uh, about our healthcare system and the state that it is in right now. Teresa, thanks for the time. Be well. Well, thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We're going to spend the next half hour talking about healthcare and see if we can get some... Um, some interesting discussion going on. Um, uh, you know, I'm just watching an excerpt on um, uh, on CTV News now, and they've got the head of the Ontario Nursing Association on uh, talking about the appointment of the new position of a reinstatement of the chief nursing officer. Uh, and then it go, immediately, it, it, you know, instead of talking about something like this, they start talking about how they've got to repeal, the Ontario government's got to repeal uh, uh Bill 124, which keeps uh, nurses' salaries at 1%. So he says, uh, Bill 124 affects all public civil servants. It was put into effect before the pandemic, like two and a half years ago, when inflation rates were below 1%, and it was capping uh, public sector service employees' wages at 1% through the pandemic. Now, obviously, those contracts are up, and there's room for negotiation, and yet all we're screaming about is Bill 124, as opposed to how to help the Canadian or provincial healthcare system. Uh, this is one of the reasons why this has turned into a, a 
a discussion of special interest and 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 the solution or trying to find the solution to what ails our healthcare system kind of gets pushed to the back burner as everybody shoves to the front of their line with their hand out waiting for their piece of the pie. It's a frustrating discussion to have. We're bringing in uh, for two segments Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow with McDonald-Lurie Institute and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Scott. We talked during the global pandemic about how it's obvious to Canadians now that things have to change. They have to change. And now that we're towards the end of this or at this stage of this pandemic where it's time to be having these discussions, we're screaming the same old songs again, doctor. We're screaming the same old provincial band-aid solutions here. Are we getting any closer to having an intelligent discussion between the provinces and the feds about a solution to this system, to, to fix this system. Well, it certainly seems like we're getting closer, doesn't it? I mean, we've had a Western Premier's province. We just had the Eastern Premier's province just on, on Monday afternoon uh, with uh, Doug Ford participating in that. And, you know, I was cautiously optimistic. So kudos to them. They talked about collaboration and getting together. And to be clear, as a Premier, you don't want to be the only person out there talking about healthcare change. So they're getting together, they're talking. And the three big messages I heard from that meeting was the status quo can't continue. And that's even kind of brave from what we've heard in the past. The second issue is we need new ideas from the frontline docs and nurses. Okay, so that sounds nice. Whether or not they listen to the new ideas is, is something to be seen. And then the third thing we've heard a million times before, provinces want more money from the feds. Give us more money. They want 13% increase, another $28 billion. We heard the same thing from the Western Premier. So, yes, I mean, it seems like people are willing to talk about this out loud. And even to say the status quo needs to change is, uh, you know, a baby step. But in your opening introduction, and that's what I was going to mention too, you also hear people almost go apoplectic if you even mention any kind of change. You don't even have to talk yeah. about specific policies. So. It's interesting you should say that because uh, I think one of the important issues that has come out of these provinces in the pro- uh, Premier's meeting is we can't move forward. The status quo is not working anymore. Um, does that force change? Does that, there's no, is that an attitude of no turning back now? So, this is a very complicated question you've just asked, but I guess I'd, I'll, I'll try to answer it. I'm not sure I'll do a great job answering it, but we, we've had Medicare for 50 years, so it finally rolled out across Canada in 1972, and so all the provinces and territories have it. And I think it's time, and I think Canadians have an appetite for this, to ask ourselves, how are we doing? How, you know, how are we really doing? Not how much do we love the dream of Medicare. How is Medicare performing when we actually get sick? And a lot of people are wondering, is it going to be there for me when I get sick? And so matched with that question, we need to ask, do some of the policies that are baked right into Medicare itself lead to anti-patient behaviors? So as rationing and limiting services and pursuing efficiency um, uh, uh, with, you know, people sitting in a committee saying, you know, we need to be more efficient here, not really caring at all how you are doing, sitting in a hallway waiting for care, waiting for a bedpan. And so I I think we're moving. I'm not sure I answered your question, but I'd be happy to take a second kick at it if you ask it a different way. 
Feds say that uh, they want more accountability from the provinces. What more can the provinces do at their level to deliver the money that they are getting more efficiently? Yeah, so you nailed it, actually. When you ask about accountability, and, and what most people miss here is that right at the center of this question. So the provinces say, give us more money but don't tell us what to do. And the feds continually say, we'll give you more money, but we really want to be able to say what's going on. And so we often refer to that as we want strings attached. And fascinatingly, uh, the Institute for Research on Public Policy did it pr- published a survey this spring in April, and they surveyed Canadians saying, what do you think? Do you want strings or no strings, or you just want the feds to give the provinces the money and get care going? And not surprisingly, the, most Canadians said, the majority of Canadians said, just give the money, no strings attached. The provinces know what they're doing. Let them get going. So increase transfer payments. However, Canadians also said, don't increase our taxes. On the mm. other side, though, the feds were very clear. So Minister, Health Minister Duclos um, said in March, he, he called it five priorities. They're actually more like 10 or 12, if you actually read the priorities. Uh, he said... We'll give you money, but we want the provinces to deliver, you know, solve problems with staffing shortages and delays in diagnosis, treatment, and surgery. That's just one point. So that sounds like four points to me. And then he lists a whole bunch of others following. So very detailed, and the message is clear. The feds want to say what's going on, but they don't want to pay even half of the price tag. They're only paying 22 Mm. cents on the dollar right now. Yeah. Um, We... We have heard from um, uh, politicians talk about dental care, talk about pharmacare, talk about daycare. We seem to be more interested in plowing the same field than we do going back to fix the system that's already broken. Do we need to fix this before we can focus on those other programs? It seems that, you know, whenever we start to talk about uh, the crumbling healthcare system and not brag about it, then all of a sudden we start talking about, well, no, let's do this, let's do that, let's do yeah. something else, pattern on the same thing. Yeah, so uh, we could get into a debate or a lecture about public choice theory and how people in, in public office, whether it's politicians or civil servants, are really motivated to say and do and pursue policies that will increase their support from the public or their budget that they're in charge of or the size of their bureaucracy or department. So I would take with a grain of salt what what they're saying there. Having said that, they do have power to make decisions and change our lives. When it comes to pharmacare, dental and daycare, um, at least on the pharmacare bit, it's fascinating to me, and I just wrote a paper on this recently. We, we, We don't have to dig into it completely, but on the pharmacare bit, it seems like they don't want to reproduce what's going on in Medicare. So first dollar coverage, you know, all you can eat kind of approach, and they just limit what's available by cutting the portion size behind the counter. It's kind of like going Mm. to a buffet where there's not much on offer. But they do talk about value-based insurance design. So in other words, only covering things that actually are high value types of pharmaceuticals. And if they aren't super high value, okay, well, then maybe patients need to do some cost sharing. So there are, you know, academic papers being written as being discussed openly when you talk about pharmacare, but oh my gosh, don't you dare mention it with Medicare. I'm hoping that people can finally see that, hey, wait a second, 
If I pay zero all the time for everything everywhere, that means someone else has all the power to decide how and when and where those dollars are being spent and invested. And it isn't until you actually are sitting by yourself in a hallway waiting for care or your your mom is not getting the surgery she needs or the radiation therapy that she needs that people actually come to the realization that, oh my gosh, mm. we are underinsured. We're not getting what we were promised. Uh, doctor, let's talk about private versus uh, public. It seems, and, and you, know, you talked about this in, in our last segment, uh, we were mentioning how uh, the leaders are saying status quo is just not going to cut it anymore and no more provincial band-aids are going to solve these problems for any long term. Uh, but nobody wants to discuss the change that needs to happen in order to find that solution. How do you balance private versus public and I mean, this is, it seems it's more of a political argument than it is a solution. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, two, two things that jump to mind right away. Number one, you have to reassure everybody that we're talking about universal care. So we're not talking about a system where you, okay, if it's not the current Medicare system, then, oh my gosh, you're abandoned in a field somewhere to care for yourself and you have mm-hmm. no access to health care. No, we're not talking about that. There are 28 universal health care systems around the world. 22 of those universal health care systems have some form of patient cost sharing. You could call that private if you want. Um, but just to say that we're talking about universal care. So that's number one. Number two, though, public versus private what the heck do those labels mean? So really, it's almost like name-calling. Unless it's the current Medicare system, then it is the evil private system. Well, tell me Mm. what that means. Or let's talk about positive policy solutions. For example, stop rationing services or stop setting prices or stop, you know, um, restricting where people can work or talk about licensing or patient choice. So there are a number of positive solutions we could talk about. Or... Um, we can just keep throwing labels back and forth. I'd be happy to unpack those labels for you, but we, we really need to figure out what the heck are people meaning when they say private. Uh, again, this and this frustrates me more than anything when these discussions are taken over by the extremes, whether it's energy, whether it's healthcare, whether it's feeding the world, or or what have you. And you brought up a valid point about it, it being universal as opposed to paying with a credit card. And when people say private, they think, oh, it's like the U.S. system, which I'm not sure this is even accurate. Where if you before you even get served, you got to throw down your credit card. Can you explain that it's not about how you pay? it's about who provides the service for you well also who provides the service but also who controls the service so so just really really simply if we separate the public sector and the private sector we're talking about ownership and control so a lemonade stand your daughter sets it up out there she owns the lemonade the ice the cups the stand she decides who her customers are the cost you know how much she's 25 cents versus 50 cents she's in total control so that would be the extreme end of private it turns out that almost no industry currently, even bakers, have regulations they have to follow, right? So somewhere on the spectrum between public and private, you start adding regulations and rules and licensure you know, requirements. Um, you, bec- you have less and less control of your working environment. So governments abandoned the idea that they had to own companies before they were truly public sector companies. I'll give you a concrete example. So hospitals, and, and people will argue, they say, no, listen, Canadian healthcare is 
99% privately delivered. And, and they'll say, look at hospitals. Okay, let's look at hospitals. Hospitals aren't owned by the government. They're a private corporation. You know, they're listed as its own corporation. They have a private board. They have independent management. They aren't civil servants. They aren't government employees. However, however, the government can shut down those hospitals anytime they want. They, the hospital has to submit a very detailed budget to the Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health then sends back an even more detailed funding letter that they have to abide by. The hospital has to abide by that. Government restricts the total volume of services. But we say, oh, look, the hospital is private. So you need to ask listeners and say, in what sense is that hospital still private if it has yeah. that kind of micromanagement and control? So that's the issue we have to face. And, and then within that control, what particular controls would we like to see changed? So, for example, is it reasonable? Right now we have a backlog of 20 million services in Ontario. Is it reasonable for the Ontario government to say, well, we can only do X million services. We're not going to catch up on those. Or should they take the flood, you know, open the floodgates and say, if you need something, go ahead and get it. Are you convinced that we are moving closer to a solution or has the global pandemic uh, opened our eyes and made us realize we have no choice here? I, I think both is correct. Uh, both of those comments are correct. So the pandemic, you know, I, I thought once we got to the other side of the pandemic, everybody would rejoice and be, yay, we're finally over. Let's go back to actually caring for all the other sick people that didn't get care. But the opposite has happened. We see people saying, you know what, man, I barely made it through. The, we're talking about healthcare workers. I barely made it through the pandemic. I'm done. I, I, yeah. I'm quitting. I'm going somewhere else. And so that surprised me a little bit. Um, so there's that. But then I think that builds on the public awareness that, oh, my gosh, we've got a health human resource crisis in Canada. We have emergency departments closing, ICU departments closing. And, and so I think that has up the temperature in the room or the appetite, whatever the right descriptor is, for people to say, let's get some substantive change. What I'm hoping, though, is we can get beyond labels and start talking about specific policy options that we might be able to pursue, starting with who gets to control. Right now, all of the veto power lies with government, at least when it comes to spending. Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics uh, Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with McDonald laurie Institute, trying to solve all of the uh, Canadian medical issues uh, in one half hour. Sean, thanks so much for the time. <laughs> much appreciated. Be well. You too, sir. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we went an awful long time without really even saying the name Donald Trump, and it's been quite of uh, it's been quite um, uh, cleansing, to say the least. But uh, then all of a sudden, uh, the FBI raided his uh, Florida estate for some uh, documents he stole from work, didn't return, didn't return the company documents, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. Uh, now, uh, the New York Times has reported the president had, former president had over, uh, or had about 300 classified documents that have uh, since been recovered. And now, word that uh, Donald Trump is suing the U.S. government uh, for the FBI search on his uh, Florida estate. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. 
So give us a bit of an update here, Reggie. Uh, we understand, uh, and obviously this man loves being sued uh, or, or suing, um, and now he is suing the U.S. government uh, for the FBI raid. What can you add to this? Yeah, uh, look, there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of different layers to this story. Um, number one, yes, 300 documents, and it's reported it could be upwards of 700 documents that contained classified information uh, going higher than classified to some of the most secret uh, 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 details of, of U.S. government. Uh, and, and Donald Trump's motion that was filed last night, which really read more uh, of a bit of red meat for the base because it was highly politically charged, um, including some rallying calls. Uh, it, it really says that uh, the FBI should not be allowed to review the material and uh, that was seized in August and that a special master or an independent party should be brought in. The problem is, and from legal experts that I've spoken to, the genie is already out of the bottle and they are several weeks too late because this happened weeks ago. The information has likely already been read and that this was simply a for nothing exercise other than to rile up the base. Uh, is, is, by suing or bringing more lawsuits or whatever, is there a chance that all of this just gets delayed, tied up in court? It just, it's just never ending. It's a perpetual trial with this man, it seems. Sure. And, and that's part of uh, the reason that legal experts believe that the former president did this was to add a delay to, uh, what are already the early parts uh, of an investigation. Uh, I think that you know, it, from from the people that I've spoken with that, you know, this is it, it might not happen. Originally, they thought that maybe a third party would be allowed in because this has happened before, including with the former president. Uh, you know, one of these people were brought in to deal with what was found during searches with Michael Cohen's home and Rudy Giuliani's home. The problem being that, again, because this information has been uh, seized by FBI agents for weeks, it is likely already gone through a thorough and rigorous um, kind of read through by the people that are in the need to know groups. Uh, so this, again, is likely a way to delay, but it is not going to stop what is uh, appearing to be more and more a criminal investigation. Uh, is this another reason to send him money? Is this, uh, you know, another, uh, you know, uh, he loves the attention. Anytime he's in the headlines, he turns it into a fundraiser. Sure, and he's made millions and millions of dollars. Uh, in fact, in the days after the raid, millions of dollars uh, over every couple of days were being brought in for various uh, organizations uh, and, and, and kind of political groups linked to the former president. Uh, and the, the motion that he filed went into how he is a potential 2024 candidate and how uh, he is a kind of political victim here. So this is simply a way to uh, ensure that his base is energized, ensuring that his name remains in the spotlight, while at the same time deflecting from the fact that these are very serious uh, you know, allegations, accusations, and investigations that are underway, uh, where the former president was holding on to some of the highest secrets that are in U.S. government when he was not a president and continued to hold them, despite the fact that there were numerous requests to get that documentation back. Uh, does this seem to be working for him? Does this seem to be, is he gaining popularity? Is he gaining momentum as a result of this? Well, I mean, he's gaining momentum, at least when it comes to, uh, you know, how we're moving forward towards 22 and a potential 2024 bid in that uh, recent polling that was done for NBC that ended just a couple of days ago showed that more people put their trust and faith in Donald Trump as the Republican leader in August than they did in May. That is simply, um, you know, a, a, 
an indication of the former president keeping himself in the news, despite the fact that he may be in the wrong. Uh, I think we're going to have to see what happens after 2022's midterms, uh, whether or not he continues this kind of ironclad grip over the Republican Party. There are some questions. Will someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis get in the way of Trump as we head closer towards uh, uh, the general election? That's something to be seen. We need to see how Donald Trump's picks do in 2022's midterms. But at the end of the day, so far, this is helping him, at least when it comes to the Republicans. It's also helping Democrats because it's driving more of them out to vote, uh, to rather to register and vote. And around we go. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley joining us now, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator, and he is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing just tickety-boo. How are you? I'm doing very well, and uh, again, watching our uh, Prime Minister weave himself through uh, a series of smoke and mirrors, trying to make it sound like he's doing something, when really he's just, uh, forget about what's going over there, look at what's got going on over here. And I'm talking, I'm talking specifically about the deal, uh, and the headline on CTV said, Canada to export hydrogen to Germany. I don't think we produce enough hydrogen to export any to anywhere. Um, this is still an, is still a great idea. Ian Lee, uh, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, is bullish on this for the next 10 years or so. But it's not done. It's not developed. And once again, we've got a prime minister who's faced with a problem. And instead of solving the problem, he goes, oh, look at something shiny down here. This might help you in 20 years or so. Uh, what are your thoughts about all of this? Should we be sending liquid natural gas over to Europe instead of promises that we're going to build hydrogen plants, which now seem to be the savior of the world, not electric vehicles or solar panels? Well, when you say we don't have enough hydrogen to send, keep in mind, we didn't have enough PPE to send at the beginning of COVID. <laughs> yet we did anyway. Yeah. So yeah. that's never yeah. stopped us before. If we're short on something, we're, you know, we're happy to give it away. And then once it's gone, we go, oh, uh, hmm. how do we get that back again? But we're talking so, about a technology that isn't even developed yet. It's still in its very, very early all stages. This, Scott, and all of this, all of I'm, this. Like, I love absolutely. the idea, like so many other things. I, I'm not uh, I'm not op- opposed to no, electric no, cars. No. The problem is we, we're saying we want to have all, like all of our cars being electric in 10 years or 20 years or whatever. That's That's fine. That's a nice goal to have. What are we doing, not just to create the cars that are still wildly overpriced that, for most people, um, and not just the batteries, but, you know, I, I heard, I read somewhere, and someone can correct me on this, that we've got a plan for like 50,000 charging stations around the country to do this. 50,000, think about what, you can't just put, you were going to need yeah, yeah. thousands just in certain intersections of Toronto and along the 401. 50,000 charging stations isn't going to do diddly squat for us. We're going to need quadruple, quintuple that number, which is acres of space for people to pull their cars off to the side of the highway and start charging. And, you know, these are the things like, again, I, the ideas are fine. These, yep. these, these forward thinking ideas are great, but there has to also be reality built mm. into this as well. And I'm fine if you can come forward with an idea and say, not only is this a brilliant idea, but here is the path for us to do it. And it's a realistic path. I am more than happy to listen. 
I am more than, and I think most Canadians are more than happy to listen. It's when you come up with an idea, for example, another one, the fertilizer thing with the farmers, yeah. all right? You're going to come up with an idea. What is the way you're going to compensate and make this work for someone rather than simply saying, we're going to do this. And they say, how? And you go, well, we're going to do this. It's like, it's, it's honestly, it's like that scene in Spinal Tap when they look at the amps and, he, and the, this one goes to 11 and he goes, well, why not yeah. just make 10 the highest? And he goes, but this one goes to 11. Like you just, yeah. you can't yeah. wrap yeah. your head around, you need to answer a question. And, so and that, yet, that, go ahead. and yet, and yet, we seem to be cutting off supply before we've got there. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, we're we're not we're not using the the liquid natural gas, uh, even though now Germany's talking about going back to coal just to get them through the winter. Um, yet we're already cutting off, uh, y- you know, the the Canadian energy industry and with hydrogen. And again, I'm all for this. Let's bring it on. But where does this fit into the mix with the electric vehicle announcements that were just made? The mining of the Ring of Fire to export all of the uh, export and exploit all of the minerals needed in batteries. Uh, hydrogen is a completely different direction. So what are we doing here? Which one of these is going to work? And 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 if we're at the stage where we don't know yet, well then obviously we're going to put a bit into everything. But we certainly can't start shutting off taps. The, like Scott, I want to have $10 million in my bank account next Tuesday. But what am I going to do? Other than saying I want to have that, and that's a really nice goal to have, yeah. what am I doing to prepare myself to make that happen? And so often, it seems, we're coming up with these ideas without a practical. They are lovely ideas. They're, they're Alice in Wonderland, some of them, that you look at and you say, boy, if that could work. That would be amazing. And some of these things probably can work down the road. But what are we doing to make sure that we are in touch with reality to make sure that in the meantime, right? So so when we now say 50% of cars or whatever the number is have to be electric by 2030 or whatever, I can't remember what the number is that they've come out with. But all right, do we have the infrastructure in place that those vehicles are going yeah. to be able to work in a freezing climate where you have long stretches. Imagine trying to drive from, you know, Regina to Saskatoon in January along a straight flat highway and there's not enough charging stations and all of a sudden your battery goes low because it's freezing cold. We have to think of these things. You can't just say electric and make it happen. There's, there's, there is reality in our world that we have to keep our fingers on. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him after the 6 o'clock news or read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. As always, we greatly appreciate it. And leaving it, uh, oh, sorry, let's thank first. <laughs> let's thank the two. Will and Liz for producing, uh, Diana and Dave in the newsroom. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. Steve wrote in and said the two teachers that live next to me bought two new vehicles in the past six months from the money they saved not using fuel traveling back and forth every day during the pandemic what's up with that oh no
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.